Welcome, everyone, to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 189. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at Journeyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Hey, John, I'm doing great. We are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor-neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at NerdJourney. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Awesome, Nick. So this is episode number 189, which is part three of our discussion with Joe Hughes. You know, a little peek behind the curtain. We are uh, back from VMware Explore 2022, where we were able to meet up in person. And actually, I got to chat with Joe uh, very briefly, didn't spend enough time talking to him. And I got to talk to uh, several of our past guests, although not enough. And again, not spending enough time with each. A little bit bittersweet for me, but I don't know. Did you did you have a good experience of VMworld? I did. You said VMworld, by the way. Ah, uh, VMware Explorer. I'm sorry. I'm I'm so off brand. But I have to say, man, I the energy tank what might have been below empty when I got home. <laughs> Maybe all the sessions, all the meetings. You were was, doing a lot. It was a lot. Yeah. You had four sessions plus customer meetings plus plus plus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you and I had a session, and I think maybe in a future episode we'll talk about how we prepared and and how it went. Just to get back to Joe, if you haven't listened to parts one and two of this conversation, episodes one eighty seven and one eighty nine, uh, highly encourage you to do it. Really cool conversation. Really cool guy. But just as a, a just a brief uh, reminder, part one we went over Joe's early. Uh, experience. He worked at a manufacturer, had some uh, experience working with direct family members. That was kind of interesting. Got into retail sales, and then that transitioned into a full-time IT professional. Then kind of the transition between parts one and two was um, a role he had where uh, networking and, and personal contact and, you know, making connections with people was was involved. And and so as we transitioned to part two, you know, it was that uh, impact of community involvement, the different, you know, people that he got to meet, uh, his, some of his thoughts about the generalist specialist divide, that was uh, good to revisit that topic. And then a little bit about how Joe, uh, towards the end of his uh, IT career, got involved in uh, change reviews and systems revisions and as a as a large scale uh, change process, it, it was you know really interesting to to hear about that experience. I don't think I've ever been involved in something something like that. But uh, as we get into part three, Nick, uh, was there anything that you thought that listeners should uh, listen out for in part three and the conclusion of our Joe Hughes trilogy? The winds of change are coming. I actually think you should pay close attention to what Joe says about a technologist's value to the organization. He makes some interesting points about finding his fit after getting turned down a lot of times. And then another one that stands out is he gives some reasons for leaving a company you like for somewhere else. How about you? 
Uh, yeah, I think those are really good points to listen out for. One thing that jumped out at me, full disclosure, this was you know, Joe's transition into the vendor side of the business. The pressure of joining an organization where you already have a reputation because you've been involved in their user community in you know, a very high profile way like that. That's an interesting thing that I don't think I've ever had to deal with. And then also Joe talks about a couple different role changes in this episode and he's leveraged the community at every turn. So that transition and value that he saw at the end of part one and, and really started to, to dive into in part two really uh, started to pay dividends in part three, actually probably in part two as well, but just a, a really cool story and is way more involved than I'm making it sound. So um, I think rather than talking about the episode, I'm just going to throw it right to the episode. Here it is, part three of our conversation with Joe Hughes. John mentioned this concept of rollback strategy. I think that's a fascinating term. And I think that it's something that maybe we keep in mind when we decide to specialize more. So I'm curious, Joe, because you, you did eventually did decide to work for a technology vendor. So I'd like to hear a little bit about that story and if you had any rollback strategy in mind as you went through that process. My rollback strategy, honestly, about moving to the vendor side was just I could find another role if I had to. I was at least confident that I was well known enough in the local community where I was geographically located that if something came down to it, I could probably pick up the phone and get another job in a reasonable amount of time. At that point, moving to that vendor role was actually going to be the third role in a row that was basically handed to me because people knew my skill set or because I was known in the community where somebody said, not only does he have the skills, but he will work on essentially any team and he just gets things done. So my rollback plan was just, we're going to give it a shot. But at the same time, if a, if a team lead at a technology company where I was a fairly large evangelist of the technology and of the company itself he didn't know me. He reached out to somebody else who said, oh, I would love this job, but I don't have the skills for it. Go talk to Joe. Having that hiring manager reach out to me to make the connection request on LinkedIn and then say, I want you for this role. And oh, by the way, we've had like 26 people internally that said, I've got dibs on getting the referral fee for Joe. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, this is probably going to go okay. That's a that's a good way to come into a company, but then maybe some some pressure as well. A little bit. When I was when I was meeting my my teammates for the first time, I only knew two of them because one of them had been my solutions architect who had sold to my company when I was on the customer side. He was he was also somebody who had given me a little bit of pressure because I had attended the conference that the company had about six months before I came on board. This was this was all at Veeam. I had gone to Vmon and I'd done a presentation as a customer of uh, what was titled Automate Yourself Out of a Backup Job. That went extremely well. There were 220 plus people that sat in that presentation and I thought I was in the wrong room when I saw the crowd that was there. 
but the architect who was leading our advanced deployment and optimization course was the Veeam employee that was the proctor for it. So he had already given me lots of pressure that he expected I should know everything that was in the course because he had covered it for our organization or he thought I knew the technology well enough that I should just have all of the answers or find them faster than anybody else. And then the other person that was on my team was was Tim Smith, who I had just known through the community for years and years. So I had to do technical and culture fit interviews with people on my team that I had never met before. And they were like, okay, tell me why you're such a big deal. And I was like, well, geez, okay. <laughs> so it was, wow. it was a little bit awkward. Um, yeah. That is awkward. I imagine. And what kind of role, I, I should ask the question, like what was the role that you uh, first were joining a vendor for? I, I actually joined into a vendor to be a pre-sales solutions architect. And we had, we essentially had two different roles or, or two, two different focuses for the team. We had three solutions architects that were regional and that were focused on, on a specific geo. And we had another team that were national resources essentially. And we were all to be specialists. So I came in as a pre-sale solutions architect for Veeam focused on automation and integration, which was very interesting because I had been turned down at that point for, I think, seven SE roles. Uh, no, sorry, six SE roles and one technical partner manager role that I had applied for over the years because they told me I was either too technical or I was too upfront with the account execs that I was talking with about the things I knew about the technology or the difficulties that I'd had in different workarounds for different things when they had presented me with a couple of questions or or specifics for customer environments. And they just said, yeah, you're you're way overboard for an SE and don't have the past sales experience. So you're not a good fit for this. But when then the SA role came around and they said, Oh, we need people that do the automation and people who know all of the different workarounds that we've got to do at this scale. Now you're a good fit. SE being solution engineer, SA being solution architect, right? Correct. Just so that everybody knows. It would be great if you could uh, distinguish between those two roles, how they Deferred at, at Veeam. Yeah, the, the two different roles that we had was that the, the solutions engineer that we had was a role where you were essentially kind of assigned to a customer based on size. So we had the customers that were SLED, we had commercial, we had enterprise, we had a, a few SEs, uh, engineers, sales engineers, sorry, systems engineers that were assigned to be on specific key accounts that we had, uh, especially like a lot of accounts when we were really trying to get into the enterprise space that we had resources dedicated to them. But then the solutions architects were the folks that were brought in as we had either large enough architectures or large enough deals that we needed like another level of expertise that was on it, whether that was bringing in the regional essays as a roll-up or the specialist essays as there was a need for, you know, Tim Smith would cover, say, Office 365 and and other, you know, the emerging technology, some of the newer stuff that Veeam was doing. We had one solutions architect that was focused on cloud, a few folks that were solutions architects focused on even just larger environments and performance at scale, or me where I was focused on automation and integration. And a lot of times that kind of ended up being a um, an add-on almost as an interim or, or a handoff to post sales and getting them to the actual implementation of the product. Got it. So it's maybe much more in-depth design 
and technical proof that the thing can actually be done. Yeah, that would that would be where we were involved to actually like get the environmental dumps from a customer, right? We would be working with like an RV tools export of their virtual environment to get all the details of what they had for the network, for the storage, what were their goals, what were their hard requirements that they had for their recovery and things like that, and then help them to kind of custom define the best way that they could use the product to solve whatever problems that they had, and then also to make sure that they were understanding of other capabilities that we had where maybe they could even get additional benefit out of the product rather than it being just backup and recovery, right? Because just some of the things that we had within Veeam, a lot of times the solutions architects would either push it ourselves or we would try and, and really do our best to just empower all of the engineers to understand how they could explain some of the other capabilities with the product to like my, my big tagline and my big pitch that I always had was to be able to be doing things like patching against clones or against replica versions of an environment. So people could test on production, but not in production. And that was something that was kind of a concept that was lost to a lot of people. And I was just like, you bought the product. You can do this thing. You absolutely should do it because you could probably save yourself some headache or again, you can practice this enough times that you have de-risked it by figuring this thing out. Or at the worst, if you blew it up, you can delete that copy and spin up another one. Some of that is, is technical leadership. Here are some recommendations that can make your life better. I mean, you already bought the stuff. Let's get the most value out of it that you can. I also like the idea of justifying the purchase by spreading out the, uh, you know, the benefits to more than one organization. So there might be like a backup and, and recovery and disaster recovery part of the organization. But if you can also prove benefit to somebody who's in charge of patching, that's generally not exactly the same. Right. Right. So if you're starting to magnify the benefits and a bunch more people in the organization start saying, hey, we kind of need to do this because I kind of need to be able to do this. And then you start to get get some momentum and and you also solve the problem that that i had selling backup to my boss which was hey we're on version three and, and version six is twice as good but i can't articulate why and uh he didn't he didn't fund that that project well that's because it was already under software maintenance right no yeah okay yeah. go ahead <laughs> some of it i think is is honestly that it's I hate to put it this way, but it's a skill that's lacking for a lot of us as technologists. We are so focused on the things that we do in our job role. And for a lot of us, because of the way that a lot of organizations run or manage their IT departments, like our personality to the organization and our benefit to the organization is our individual role and how many buttons we click in a day sort of thing. Whereas I try and always get people to understand that our benefit to the organization is the knowledge that we have, and especially focused on things like automation, it's being able to take the things that you know, the things that you can do, and spread this out to be a capability to everybody else as much as possible, right? Take your skill set and make this a thing that is now just the commonly accessible job function that anybody else can do, and you can start working on higher level things, and especially for a lot of us as technologists that don't focus on the business side or hate dealing with it a lot of times, 
we're not very good at pitching our ideas or the things that we want or legitimately feel like we need as technologists as to how they are actually still a benefit to the organization, even if they're costing money, right? So if we can do a better job of pitching that or showing that this is going to cost the organization money, but I can take these functions of this tool that exist in the tool, or I can just take all the things that I know that I can put back in place and turn this into, here's a place where I can take this spend on a technology and provide different value back to the organization by just using it maybe in a new and interesting way. I think you're touching on something here where as technologists working in the trenches sometimes, we don't take time to think about how the organization that we work for makes money. And so we don't think about how it is that our daily work affects whether or not the organization makes money. Or, I mean, there's other, you know, things that we can talk about that that people care about too, other than just like increasing revenue. I think there's maybe adding new customers a little bit more effortlessly or reducing uh, the friction that it takes to do something. I feel like we should all at least be better at being able to define our role in the terms of what it means to the business as either a positive enabler of the business or even the yes, I cost this amount of money on paper, but I am an insurance policy against these other things that could go wrong, maybe. Having worked in a couple of IT organizations where we rolled up directly to the CFO showed me a lot about how I needed to be able to sell my ideas or pitch whatever product or upgrades we were trying to purchase and bring into the organization in the terms of what it meant for the business and what the either intrinsic or future value of this thing was in the terms of what the business actually did for the core of its own business. Well, that's interesting too. Yeah. So again, you know, it's like, how is my work or my team's work directly aligned with that? Can I articulate that? Or in the other case, like you said, if you're an insurance policy, you better articulate or be able to articulate the likelihood of the various scenarios that you are insuring against and and then the monetary impact that each one of those scenarios can have on the organization this is how it would cost money if the you know cupcake you know paper paper crimper goes down this is how many you know thousands of dollars a minute that we lose and so insuring against that even at a you know 1% chance of the thing happening you know, has this much of an impact, like do the math on that, right? It's like, well, these are the seven scenarios that we're insuring against and they add up to 40% chance happening every single year. So, <laughs> and this is the financial impact of that 40% of, you know, that is a budget justification right there. That it is. Right? I will say it was, it was empowering in the organizations where I was at when the individuals that were in IT could explain the majority of what our job functions were or whatever projects or upgrades we were working on if we were to have an actual elevator conversation with our CEO or CFO, where in that 30 seconds of, of traveling, you know, six to eight floors in the elevator and they asked you a question on the spot, could you articulate that in terms that they would understand without going deep into the tech and those of us that could do it, or especially if the entire team could do it at that level where they were confident that we were aware of what was going on 
in our organization, both on the tech side and the business side, that was an entirely different department to work in as IT being a real part of the business rather than just being a necessary evil or a cost center. Yeah, that's a great mindset to be in. Imagine you have 30 seconds to explain this to the CFO. I dig it. I'd like to know about that transition from Veeam to Pure, where you are now. What did that look like? Or is that awkward to ask about? No, it's it's not at all awkward. I just laugh about this one, honestly, because to be frank, I wasn't even looking to leave Veeam at the time. And now that I know the process was easy, I probably wouldn't question it, but I do look back on it and I was like, wow, moving cross country and switching job roles at the same time, or even interviewing to switch job roles at the same time was kind of crazy last year. During a pandemic. Yeah, during a pandemic, um, you know, where I, like I came on board at the company and, and I went for what, about eight months or so before I met my boss. And I think he still only met about a third of our team to this point. People have honestly asked me, especially at the time that I announced that I was getting ready to leave Veeam and they were like, wow, it's crazy. You're going to take off the green hat because that was, you know, easily part of my public brand at the time and everything. And uh, people just couldn't believe that I would even just so easily hang up the green hat and put on the orange hat, right? And switch from, from Veeam to Pure because I was such a proponent of Veeam. And, you know, I'm, I'm hoping at this point we'll make it to Vanguard next year and we'll be like the eventual Vanguard five years after I should have made it. But it's just that I completely stumbled into this thing. I saw someone retweet that someone at Pure was looking to hand over the reins for this flash deck role. I reached out to him because I thought he was actually leaving the company after about eight years. And I wanted to know why I wanted to know what the story was, wanted to know where he was going. Cause I was like, man, if you would leave pure storage, which has been one of the, one of the vendors that I thought I would leave Veeam for, if the opportunity came up, what, what else is out there? What am I, what am I not aware of or things like that? And it just ended up being that he was actually wanting to move into a solutions manager role and and do more of the director level and relationship management stuff. So he needed somebody who knew the tech, um, having deployed it in the real world. He'd also been out of the customer space, you know, for at least eight years that he'd been at Pure. They were looking for somebody who was plugged into the community, both on the VMware community side, just the general V community, and specifically on the on the Cisco community side. And they were hoping they could find somebody who could occasionally put a few words together and present to others without being totally new to this. So I happened to talk to the right person at the right time. And because it was partially what I was already doing or what I had experience with in the past, it was a great fit. And it was just offered to me, essentially. Like I still had to go through interviews and such, but I found out at the end of the process, they didn't even start interviewing a second person once I was interested in it and started down the path. So, oh wow, I, I was a little bit bored with some of the repetitive tasks, and and I was never a huge fan of being a pre-sale solutions architect, primarily because of the fact that I'm I feel like I'm a decent presenter, and I feel like I'm very customer focused, and I can give a lot of passion to folks about using the technology that they're using. But I, in the back of my mind, could never see myself being tied to a sales number because I didn't want to tank somebody else's sales because I didn't do it well. <laughs> so, being tied to like the the Veeam national number rather than than an individual account exec or or having a team that I might potentially greatly affect with things like that, 
it, it worked out okay, but I wasn't looking for an opportunity. Um, I actually considered taking the counter offer from Veeam um, for a, a rather large sum of money that was there to just have me continue doing the same job and maybe take another opportunity that would come up. But the desire to come to Pure, where I'd already looked at, at this being a place that I would potentially move to as, a, as another vendor in the future, and then the actual opportunity of the job role itself to do different cool and interesting things and be a little bit more involved in the community, kind of have a little bit of a trajectory where I could move to being a bit more of a tech marketing focused architect. And just the fact that I had so much more runway that I could do things with automation and a lot more in the infrastructure as code space that I was already really wanting to get into. It just ended up being a great fit for me. So I just decided to make the switch. Can you tell me, you mentioned you know, almost as a throw throwaway line, one of the companies that I would consider moving for, right? Because you obviously you enjoyed, you know, Veeam as a company. And I, I've, you know, had like a very parallel experience, right? Google Cloud was one of the companies that I would consider, you know, leaving VMware for. But what did that mean to you? Like there was something about the company or a set of criteria that you had, or there was some process that went you went through that made you think, oh, that is a company that would be within the universe of companies that I would consider working for, as opposed to companies that, you know, clearly the implication is that you would not consider working for. Yeah, a lot of that was just me having my own personal rubric for it. And the number one thing for me, especially after having some bad roles in the past, was absolutely about a 60-40 split, the direct hiring manager that I would be working for, and then company culture, right? And and how the fit of, of me and the, the team that I would be working with and the overall company culture aligned with something that I've at least not heard horrendous things about, right? At least just from the outside view or from talking to the few people that I know at at other vendors, you know, what's what's the best feel that I can get for just the moderate temperature of the way things are there. And then beyond that, it's the technology and seeing if there were individuals that I could pick out inside of an organization where I could even just say from an outside view, it seems like these people really enjoy their job and the company is obviously supporting them to do something that they're passionate about. And especially for what I was already doing at Veeam, both for the job role and all the support that I had to continue doing the things with being a leader for the VMware user group and the PowerShell user group and being active in the community and speaking at other events. I wanted a company that it seemed like was very invested in the community aspect of things and letting individuals kind of do the choose your own adventure for their career path where the company says you're still doing good things for us and by you doing this stuff on the side it's still going to bring a benefit to the organization overall so at a couple of of vendors that i had talked to where i had been considering moving there before um i had even just asked some of the employees like how many of you still do community events how many of you still present on the side how many of you are working on side projects or authoring books or any video courses or, or things like that to just understand, is it acceptable in the company culture? And was it as supported as well as Veeam was doing it for me? Just knowing that that was something that I had as a desire or, you know, I guess career baggage that I was bringing with me to wherever I'd be going. 
I mean, that's a really good thing to know about yourself. Like these are the things that I want to do that I want to keep on doing. And these are the companies that would support me in doing that. So if I see a company where somebody continues to do that and I can kind of observe from the outside that they support multiple people doing that and it seems to be part of their company culture and I can maybe go in and confirm that, you know, to the best of my ability, then if that company were to come calling, that's one of the phone calls that I would take. Did I hear that correctly? Yeah, defining my own priorities or even just the things that I wasn't necessarily sure that I was going to do because, you know, I've been reached out to by a handful of companies to either publish a book or publish some training courses and things like that. I've never, I haven't jumped into it just yet, mostly because of the time commitment and me being as committed as I've already been on the community side. I don't have basically an extra 60 hours a week to commit to some of the other things because I know doing it the first time is going to be a massive undertaking. Um, and I've, and I've got to be willing to dedicate myself to that. But even just knowing that that might be a consideration that I would have, it became something that was in my list of questions to ask of a potential employer and a potential manager of, would these be things that you would support me in if I was going to decide to do this in the future? That's an important one. Have that list ready and add to it over time mentally so that so that you know the things that are, well, I guess we'll call them intangibles to a certain extent. You know, maybe that's not something that you can quantify with, from a compensation standpoint, but part of the package of me moving to company XYZ is I can spend five hours a week working on this special project and that's okay. Yeah, one of the one of the pieces of career advice I got from somebody years and years ago, he was a guy who had retired from IBM and actually came to work at the hospital for the majority reason that he wanted to be able to work with his son who was moving into tech. He could have just retired and not done anything, but he also understood he would have been bored out of his mind to not be doing tech, you know, 16 hours a day sort of thing. So he took the role and moved organizations because that was something for him that was a personal desire to be able to to work with his son. And he just told me, he said, you know, one of the things I learned from from a long career in tech is he said, in the end, the pay is the same. You like it, you don't like it, you absolutely hate it. You switch from company to company, right? You move up a little bit, you move down, you take a lateral move. Like really, when you think about it in the end, the pay is the same on all of it. He was like, it comes down to your happiness. It comes down to your benefits. It comes down to your work-life balance or whatever it is that you want to do. And if your company is going to let you do that. And he was like, because if not, you can find someone else who's going to do it. And the chances are the pay is the same over there. So like, think about all the other things that come with it, not just the paycheck. We're both hitting the, the like love plus one button over here. Definitely. I don't, I kind of think that that's as close as we're going to get to like a mic drop moment. <laughs> like that's a, an awesome piece of advice. That's what I think it was. Yeah. We, we all kind of need to think about it and it's, you know, another pattern it's, that we've, you know, stumbled into is this, you know, what is it that's important to me? Like you can't think about it like as you're getting a call for, you know, to, to get recruited like that is almost too late. You need to think about it now while you're doing your current job 
what is it that I wish I could do? What What is it that I feel like I'm getting supported in that I didn't know ahead of time that I would be that is now like pretty critically important to me in anywhere that I go? And, you know, what are the things that I miss maybe about other positions that I had where I had the freedom to do something that I don't have now, where you're kind of listing out those things and saying, here's the things that I can't negotiate on. They are must-haves. And then of the next tier, you know, I want as many of them as I can get. And then here's like the bottom tier where these are, man, it would be kind of neat to have some of these as well. And and I think that, Nick, we kind of need to go a little bit beyond just saying like, you know, add it to a mental list. It, it needs to be like recorded somewhere. You know? Yeah. Otherwise we forget. Mm-hmm. Take, you know, take an inventory are important to us. and write it down. And, and when you have this inventory of the things that are defined for you that you need, like number one, we should be taking career and personal goals into mind that are outside of the technology that we want to work on or whatever skills we want to achieve or certifications or whatever, right? Think about the long-term goals that you've got and, and set those down somewhere and review it every once in a while See if what you're doing right now is getting you any closer to that goal. And if not, then you probably need to adjust the journey that you're on right now. Or you need to determine, is that really a goal that I'm actually interested in anymore? Right? Because either of those might change. But if you're continuing to do the same thing and you have a set of goals that you're not getting anywhere closer to, you're going to be unhappy at some point, whether that's now or later. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, goals change over time. So it's it's totally possible or, you know, it becomes a, a non-negotiable to a negotiable, right? Oh, I thought it was totally non-negotiable to support me in writing a book. But really what I wanted over the course of, you know, an additional year was to just do more writing. And writing in another way is, you know, scratches the itch just as much as writing a book would, you know, or maybe not. You know, like you've done a lot of blogging and you go, you know what? Blogging is fine, but what I really want is to write a book. So support for my blogging is kind of a nice to have, but support for, you know, taking time to write a book is a a non-negotiable, you know, for the position. Like that is absolutely, you know, something that that needs to be reviewed on a regular basis, you know, because, you know, it does change over time. Last question I'll ask is for those items some of the intangibles about I want the space to write a book. Is that something that you asked to put in the offer letter or is that just kind of a, you trust the hiring manager that told you yes to, to make good on it? I, I trusted the hiring manager as much as I trusted other people inside of the organization where a lot of the people that were higher up and some people that I knew that had only been on board for say a year said, Oh, we absolutely have the flexibility to do this. And Pure was at least known for being a very community and a very individual achievement focused company that they understood that they had their own intangible benefits that they would get from some of these people making a name for themselves in the tech space or becoming proficient bloggers or writers or presenters or things like this. So it was really just one of those, if this is where you want to invest your time and essentially as long as it's either not affecting your work or if it's to the point that it's something where we decide this might actually be, you know, something that drives what your future role is, then they were supportive of it. So I didn't have any of this stuff written into the offer letter, mostly because of the fact that these were things that I was presenting also as these are 
personal ambitions of mine that may or may not come to fruition. So some of it might overlap or some of it might be things where I, you know, essentially try and steal a couple of hours of work every week to to focus on this. And it was honestly, it seemed like such a non-issue where they just said, oh yeah, that's cool. And I was like, oh, well, okay, cool. Then like, I'm glad that I, that I verified because that makes me happier to know that it is something that seems like it is a complete given yeah absolutely like aspire to whatever it is you want to do and we'll support you as long as it's you know not you doing something completely non-related to the job and deciding to go become a farmer or something right yeah (laughs) never know until you ask awesome joe thanks so much for your time and coming on and we'd love to have you back you know as you take on additional roles and responsibilities and and learn additional lessons um we'd love to invite you back and to hear more of this uh wisdom very cool. Yeah, thanks for having me, y'all. I've I've been a longtime listener and and looking at the roster of folks that y'all have had that are friends of mine or some, you know, community heroes of mine over the years. I'm I'm glad to finally make it onto the roster with you guys. Yeah, we're always looking to add to that roster. So if you want to be a guest and you have some wisdom to share, tweet out to at Nerd Journey and let's talk. Let's tell that story. Yeah. Always looking for those additional stories. Joe, once again, uh, thanks for coming on, and we will catch you next time. Nick, that was just such an awesome trilogy of conversations with Joe Hughes. And, you know, just to kind of go in in chronological order here, the the stuff that I heard, especially at the beginning, you know, Joe was who he was. And rather than contorting himself to fit what was maybe what he thought was the, the ideal candidate for some of the jobs that he was initially applying for, he just stayed true to himself and the right opportunity that fit his skill set came along. And that is a really interesting lesson to learn. It's one of those things that you can do when you have the luxury of, you know, kind of being happy in the job that you ha- that you were in and the ability to be picky about making a next move. There's just really, you know, it's just a really cool uh, story there. It remind me actually a little bit of the Stephanie Wong uh, story you know, where she had a background in communications. And I think it was like the social impact of technology and it fit her eventual developer advocacy role. But, you know, it was just something that emerged over time. It wasn't something that was immediately available coming out of school, you know, initially with that degree. So, you know, you have those skills, you keep your eyes open and you keep improving yourself and the right role comes along. Yeah, and for the bingo players out there, that would be episode 177 to 178 with Stephanie Wong. Go back and listen to those. Very good series of episodes. And she was one of the ones who said that luck was when hard work meets opportunity, something like that. Yeah. I feel like that's similar to what, what Andrew Miller said, you know, keep showing up in the right place and it'll eventually be the right time. Absolutely, because I certainly didn't mean to imply that like, hey, you just are who you are, and then the opportunity just kind of floats along and like lands in your lap. Neither uh, Joe nor Stephanie did that. They kept 
applying for jobs. They kept looking for things and they kept being true to themselves and you know, pushing forward the skills that they felt were, they were bringing unique value mm-hmm. along. And it was the roles where uh, those skills were important eventually showed up or a, a hiring manager who went, yes, actually that is the specific, you know, differentiated package of skills that I was looking for um, to fill this role on this team. So it's, it's just the hard work. It's the continuous self-improvement and the continuous searching as well. Yeah. Speaking of hard work, that reminds me of Joe's telling us about reporting up to a CFO in an IT organization and learning to convey things in the right language and pitch a project, right? I have this idea for something I want to do, but it's going to cost money, but it's going to provide this value. And then he goes on to say, if you had 30 seconds with an executive, could you explain what was going on in the IT org in a way they would understand it without being too deep? I like that. I think that's something we should all aspire to and to, to speak in the language of people several levels above us. It's, it's something you have to learn how to do. It's, it's articulating business value, right? Mm -hmm. And it's something that I think you're right. It's, maybe not necessarily how we think when we're in the trenches of technology where when you're in the trenches you're thinking about the thing that's right in front of your face you're not thinking about the strategy so if you want to be thought of as somebody who is a strategic thinker then you have to start thinking strategically and not just you know the immediate tactics in front of you how about this investigating a potential employer through triangulation talking to multiple people, looking at what they're putting on social about the company that you would potentially join. What are the kinds of things that they allow and support from a for someone who already enjoys very much participating in the community? It's important to find that out, find out what's really going on, how the how the team company really works from people you know there if you have those connections. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a fascinating point actually. I don't think he explicitly said it, but um, it made me think afterwards. Like, if you really are serious about working for a specific company, are you serious enough to, like, do some research? Are you serious enough to join an advocacy program that they have? Are you serious enough to get involved in the community of users and find out how they interact with that community, how they interact with the users of their products, how they interact with their vendors? how they interact with their ecosystem partners. You know, those are the kinds of things that if you know, and that's where you can see green flags and red flags and really have the ability to do what Joe did, which was when an opportunity comes around, you already know what that company actually stands for. You already know how comfortable the employees are because you have employees who are maybe approaching the level of personal friends now. You're just dealing with them in the community all the time. And they're, they're somebody that you can make a phone call to and say, hey, can you recommend me for this job? Or, hey, do you know a little bit more about what that job role does? Or can you put me in touch with somebody who can explain it? Because I'm thinking about applying for it. You know, those are the kinds of things that, you know, that benefit of community involvement that that Joe kind of started to see the value in the, um, the end of the of part one of this interview that really he started exploiting in part two and like 
exploiting is probably not the right word. It's probably, you know, diving into getting value from, but providing value back to the community. Just stunning. Like his leveraging of the community was something that I thought that people should listen for going into this episode is just in retrospect, you know, listening to it again, just wow. What an amazing job that Joe does. I mean, continues to do. I mean, he, he made it a point to, to come find me and say hello. Our, you know, the, the pure booth was right next to the Google Cloud booth. And I was so, you know, flummoxed with a five month old uh, daddy brain that it, it just never even occurred to me to, to go walk over and say hello. He's such a good guy. Absolutely. There was something that you said earlier on about the um, technologist value. I liked the comment he made about a technologist value to the business was really more in the knowledge they possess and being able to share that with others to make them better. And it, in a way, enables you to focus on higher level things. So delivering even more value. I don't think, I don't think everybody gets that, does that, wants that just because we sometimes like oh i'm the person who does x and and that's that's mine it's hard to hard to let other people into the circle that's very true it's interesting how some people can have a knowledge hoarding attitude rather than knowledge sharing attitude mm -hmm. if they see their knowledge of a specific process as the value to the company then they don't want to share that because then other people will have that and their value is diluted. As opposed to thinking about it as their value to the company is the ability to discover these processes and hammer them out, polish them up, and then broadcasting them to other people. It's a not so subtle difference. I was about to say subtle difference. It's just not subtle. But it also, you know, can be about company culture, right? If the company has a culture of knowledge hoarding, then then that can stimulate that kind of thing. Implicit in that statement from Joe is that he seeks out organizations which involve knowledge sharing rather than knowledge hoarding. And that is an important thing to know about yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that he was able to kind of at least implicitly articulate that. I think the the last thing that uh, was kind of mind-blowing was his discussion of intangibles over compensation. The story from the, the former IBMer who said, hey, the money's probably going to be the same kind of, you know, regardless of where you go. You have to measure the intangibles at the organization that you're at versus other organizations to really understand, like, the best place for you. I thought that was a really cool idea, like just the idea that the intangibles are something that you need to really consider and could be the differentiator. Right. I would say make the intangibles something that is that you think is part of the compensation package. Ah, uh, yeah, that's a good As point. As you look at, okay, what's the total compensation package in terms of benefits, stocks if they have them, salary, you know, 401k contributions, all the things but also what are the intangibles that I really, yeah. really want or need in a, in a role? I want to join an organization with a knowledge sharing culture, um, that kind of thing. Yeah. In fact, if you have like a profound mismatch where you are and a profound match at a different organization, it might even be worth taking less monetary compensation in order to get a values alignment at a, at a new organization. 
it's a it's an interesting point. I would say you're maybe a little bit dangerous because culture can change. There's no guarantee that things will stay the way they are. In fact, things are guaranteed to change. It's just a matter of how, to what degree, and in which direction. So, you know, you don't want necessarily want to take like a massive pay cut because this organization in general lets people participate in conference talks. And then you join, and then a month later you get a new manager, and that new manager doesn't care what anybody says. That manager doesn't want their team members wasting, quote unquote, wasting time with external conference talks, then, then where are you at? Right. Yeah. It's, uh, you're unhappy. Yeah, absolutely. So I think you, you asked the question, you know, can it be written into the, the offer letter? And it generally isn't right. It's, it's one of those intangibles. <laughs> if it could be written down, it would be tangible. Undocumented benefit perhaps. Yeah. So just something to keep in mind. You just do the investigation that you can do and then trust the people that you think you can trust about, you know, what that culture and what those intangibles are. Makes sense. Anything else before we get out of here? That was like, it was a really cool episode. It was a great episode. Nothing for me. Just a reminder, we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at Nerd Journey. All right. Farewell, listeners, and tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White, at B Journeyman, for Nick Cordy, at Network Nerd underscore, signing off. Adios. Community as a weapon. Let's just call it. <laughs> yeah. A weapon for go. good, right? A weapon for good. A tool for good. I like weapon better. Uh, it's okay. not for violence, <laughs> but it, it makes a makes a splash. Right. One of those nonviolent weapons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh man. Oh man. <laughs>